Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, uh, Al Murray, and James Holland. And we are delighted today um, to be joined by uh, David Edgerton, um, uh, England and the Aeroplane, Britain's War Machine, um, uh, books that have um, sort of uh, made everyone think again, I think, David. Was that the intention when you when you set, sat down to write these books? Well, the, the, the first one... Definitely yes, actually. Uh, to think again and and to to tell a different sort of story of what the relationship between the history of England in that case, uh, the United Kingdom more generally, and war was. Um, I mean, yeah. England of the airplane came out a long time ago. It's it's thirty years old now. Amazingly, really? Yeah, oh, that's incredible, isn't it? That <laughs> that's really incredible because. Is. 
Because I, 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 I remember the first time I read read it, and it's a book I have gone back to a couple of times, thinking, "Goodness me, um, this is all." Uh, when you put it like this, this is all really quite different. And I mean, one of the stories you, one of the things you really focus in on is is um, is that is that who aviation sort of belonged to into war, and uh, and how it how it the, the for instance the people running the, the famous Schneider Trophy, which of course. In the in the myth of the Spitfire, the Spitfire is the 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 seaplane that turns into the fighter plane. Whereas, of course, you point out that they're quite different aircraft, capable of doing quite different things. But the, the people backing that were were, were fascist, basically. Weren't they? Well, yes, Lady Houston, who financed the uh, the, the race after the Labour government um, withdrew its funding in the in the Great Economic uh, Crisis, was an out and out fascist. She was the owner of a of a weekly called <laughs> the Saturday Review. Um, uh, she had a dog called Benito, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I just <laughs> love that. There was, there was all, a whole these... world of the, the British far right uh, uh, that was very closely linked up with uh, with with aviation. Oswald Mosley was an was a Royal Flying Corps pilot, and uh, he very much presented himself as a as a, as a man for the modern age, and that in, involved uh, airplanes, of course. Uh, the Daily Mail was a, a, a pro-Nazi newspaper that was very keen on the promotion of uh, of aviation in the. Well, of course the, they were they the were behind the Blenheim, weren't they? they? Exactly, they were behind the they behind the Blenheim precisely, and uh, it was very interesting that after the war, you know, a lot of a lot of these uh, aeronautical people said, "Oh, of course we saw Hitler coming, and we pushed, uh, you know, Baldwin and Chamberlain to rearm, and they wouldn't listen." But when you go back and see what they were actually thinking at the time, they were thinking it was a jolly good thing that uh, that uh, Adolf had uh, come along and you know was uh, was um, uh, imprisoning um, imprisoning uh, communists and, uh, and and getting rid of the, the cosmopolitan Jewish uh, financiers. So so yes, there was a a hard right wing element in. Um, in, in British politics and British public life that was associated with uh, with aviation. Now, I'm not saying that everyone associated with aviation was a no. was a was a fascist. Far 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 from it. And there were certainly people on the left and many in the centre who saw great promise in in uh, in, in aviation. Well, I've got to say, I remember you giving me a, a very rare copy of the aeroplane book. Um, uh, but but I came to you through Britain's War Machine and. I've got to say, ever so often, there's, you know, in, in my study of the Second World War, there's been a handful of books where it has completely. Ju- I've just thought, wow, this is this totally. It is a completely brilliant and fresh take on this. Whether it be Adam Tooze's Wages of Destruction about the Nazi economy, um, or or whether it be um, Britain's War Machine, you know, or whether it be Blitzkrieg Legend by Karl Heinz Frieser, you know, these these are books that that really make you sit up and completely rethink what you thought you know, and that's what I absolutely loved about Britain's War Machine because it actually came at a time when I'd already started to kind of draw similar sort of conclusions, and it and it kind of I I found it just completely kind of reaffirmed what I'd already been kind of sort of working towards, but in a much more lucid way than I'd actually kind of worked out at that stage. So, um, a, a big book. Well, thank you, James. Uh, actually, it's uh, it's good that you mentioned Adam Tooze's Wages of Destruction because uh, um, uh, uh, War Machine and Wages of Destruction are very complementary books. I mean, they they both um, they both take a, a a similar view of the difference between the the German case and the and the and the, and the British case. That's to say, the German case is a very kind of national, 
continentally constrained uh, war economy, the British case is, is, a, is, is one of a, of a global war economy. And the problem had been that declinist historians ha uh, assumed that the German model was a superior one, that the, the nationally focused war economy, the nationally focused uh, scientifically driven economy was always going to win. Yeah. And that assumption... I should just stop you there, David, because the, the, the declinist view... OK, so, so Al and I talked about this a little bit with Dan Tobin the other day. Um, uh, well, probably about two months ago now. But but um, you were the first person to introduce me to that phrase, and I kind of really love it. So so just, just explain what you mean by the declinist view. Well, yes, it's... Uh, <laughs> Really, what happened in the late 50s and 60s was that a whole bunch of, uh, of historians set out to explain why the United Kingdom had declined relatively and lost in 1940, as, as they uh, 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 thought of it. And they come, came up with a whole series of explanations for this, yeah, which essentially amounted to saying that uh, the British elite was rubbish at everything other than uh, hunting, fishing, shooting, um, public pomp, uh, 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 and maybe uh, uh, dressing up. Yeah? Uh, uh, they'd all studied the wrong thing at school. They'd gone into the wrong profession. They, uh, they were stuck in the, in, in the, uh, in the, in the past. See? Uh, and all they wanted to do was to kind of run an empire. Yeah. So what, what's wrong with this? Well, it sets out to explain something which didn't happen, the failure of the United Kingdom, yeah, with explanations that don't work, yeah, because the British elite <laughs> wasn't like this. Yeah? Uh, and that's what I called declinism back in the, in the early, early 19, 1990s. Yeah? It, uh, and it's, it's surprisingly important, the declinism, both in terms of what is supposed to be the issue that we need to explain, yeah, and also a set of explanations. Now, most people today don't think that the British economy declined in the sense that it went down the tubes over the over the 20th century. But lots of people still believe the explanations uh, you know, about the nature of the elite or the educational system or the nature of the state that um, that were that the explanations that were developed to to explain this thing that. Uh, that uh, that that didn't didn't happen. So, getting out of declinism is actually quite complicated, uh, but it's such a multifaceted phenomenon that relies on ideas that we take to be obvious. Well, well, in particular, that the idea that um, industry is somehow um, unimportant uh, in 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 British ruling class culture, isn't it? It's it's, it's that notion, isn't it? That that science does science isn't a thing that the British have ever been interested in. Innovation has never been a thing that's ever been on their radar. That's been the work. That's been either the Americans or or or, or the or the Germans in particular, especially in the explosion of the Second World War, and that the that the the. the that, and since the war as well, that industry industry just has been where duds go and where um, bad ideas come from. That, 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 that's roughly it, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's, it's in a way it's even weirder than that, because supposedly back in the 17th century, in the, industri in, in the 17th century and in, and in the Industrial Revolution, things were different. So the, <laughs> the British case is, is, is really, really weird in that as time goes on, uh, the British nation becomes less and less scientific and technological. Yeah. Whereas, in fact, I mean, you, you make the you make the point 
I mean, very forcefully in, in Britain's war machine that, that, that Churchill ran a science culture, um, basically himself as well, didn't he? Outside of universities, uh, 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 with Lindemann as the sort of linchpin, as, the, as, as his sort of bridge with science and his sort of roving eye scientist. And it, and it, and it worked pretty well and delivered, I mean, massive innovation and a really important uh, kit as well. Well, it did and it didn't, I, I, I think. I mean, I, you're, you're, you're right to point to the case of, of Lindemann. And actually, he's much more than a scientific advisor. He's a kind of economic advisor. Uh, 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 as well as, uh, um, and he's a very interesting figure. He's the professor of physics in Oxford. Had been a friend of a personal friend of Churchill's from from the nineteen twenties. Was it was a conservative like uh, like Churchill, uh, and he goes into the cabinet in the Second World, not into the War Cabinet, but in, into the cabinet, um, which is really quite extraordinary to have a, to have a, a scientist and personal advisor going into 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 the into the cabinet um, uh, itself. I mean, think uh, perhaps of Dominic Cummings going into the going into the cabinet yeah um except that um, uh, uh, Lindemann was actually a, a a proper a proper scientist now one very important thing that churchill and um lindemann had in common was that they despised uh, large chunks of the military technical establishment and indeed the scientific establishment uh, and um and these feelings were reciprocated so what what they they set out to do during the war was to was to create their their own little uh, world of uh, world of innovation. Uh, 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 Winston Churchill's toy shop, MD MD One, uh, the promotion of all sorts of gadgets and gizmos out of the out of the navy uh, uh, as well. Now I have to say that most of these. Um, uh, the inventions that came out of these of these uh, the, these bodies were not terribly successful, and, and you know Churchill wanted to conjure up uh, uh, inventions and new weapons out out of thin air, and he would order things off the off the drawing board like the Blacker Bombard, you know, which turned out to be really not 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 very important weapons of war. He is ludicrously enthusiastic about anti-aircraft rockets, the UPs, the un- unrotated projectiles, yeah. Uh, and these these throw the scientific establishment into despair. They see them as an utter utter waste of money, at a, at a time when um, not so much money, but but scientific and technical and industrial resources are are are, are short. So in fact, I think the, the the really big story is that the the British state uh, has been developing weapons of war, you know, for a very very long time. Uh, and this is the thing I addressed in the in England in the airplane. If you look at the interwar years, it's simply not true that the United Kingdom had disarmed uh, or that it stopped developing new new weapons of of, uh, of of war. The Spitfire obviously didn't, if it didn't come from the Schneider Trophy racer, um, it didn't come out of thin air in 1940. Uh, it comes out of one of the largest aircraft industries in the, uh, in, in the world, strongly supported by, um, by the British government. Ditto radar, not a uniquely British uh, uh, invention. ASDIC, uh, at sea and the royal navy is the largest navy in, in in the world in the in the interwar years so um we have uh, great institutions that are developing uh, uh new weapons that are that are active right through the interwar years so what you um, would call a military industrial complex uh, absolutely it, 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 but, uh, yeah, yeah a military i mean the other uh, thing david is 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 it's the other thing that sort of seems quite sort of clear to me is is that what Britain is very good at 
um, before the war and, and during the war is sort of prioritising their assets. So, you know, you have these amazing inventions such as the cavity magnetron, you know, which reduces the size of radar so you can fit it on a on a plane or, or, or on a ship out in the Atlantic, recognising, of course, that, that um, you know, that is exactly what where their focus should be. You know, the Battle of the Atlantic, we would, you know, Alan and I were just discussing this the other day, you know, is is the single most important theatre of the entire war. But but there's there's other things as well, so, such as the development of the jet engine. You, you know, uh, um, Frank Whittle isn't quite up to kind of producing what, what is required. But a huge amount of time and effort is spent on developing really first-class jet engines, which don't really come to the fore before 1945, but which are being developed during the Second World War with all the right care and attention... Uh, and, and research and development that is needed to perfect something of that complexity, uh, and, and you know this is this is why in 1945 we've got the best jet technology in the world. I mean, and, it, and it's not just because Nazi Germany's defeated; it's because we're producing better jet engines than them because we've got the time and effort and and wherewithal and expertise to develop it. Absolutely, uh, Hermione Giffard has written a brilliant book on on, right. on this. By it's, the way, which I recommend to, to everybody. Fantastic! <laughs> yeah, I read her original PhD. It's absolutely completely brilliant. Yeah, it's completely brilliant. Uh, 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 I mean, a perfect example of of, uh, of decline was in action. The old story of the of, of the jet engine, which uh, James Dyson uh, uh, has been repeating in, in in recent years. It goes like this: uh, great inventor Frank uh, Frank Whittle. Uh, nobody listens to him. The government doesn't invent, invest in jet engines. Uh, if if it had. Um, Britain would have won the war uh, um, uh, earlier. Uh, look, the Germans took it up and, um, and and did immense damage with 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 their jet engines. Absolute rubbish from beginning to end. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Frank Whittle was an RAF officer. That's a very successful career in the RAF. The RAF sent him to Cambridge to study engineering. Not the sign of a of a, of a, of a anti technological um, uh, 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 air force. They then let him. Uh, um, uh, developed the engine while he's still a, an RAF officer. They second him to this company, uh, Power Jets, and the government comes in with uh, very large sums of money to support that development. On top of that, the British government starts developing its own jet engine uh, within uh, within Farnborough. Yeah. By the end of the war, you have something like eight jet engine projects in the in the UK. And they're much better jet engines than the ones that the Germans, in, the, in their desperation, are putting up into the into the skies over over Germany. So, so that's, that's there's what also talking, there's also Griffiths about, as well, uh, isn't it? Uh, getting rid of declinism. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> there's also Griffiths. Isn't I, I is it Griffiths? Uh, Griffiths. At, it's uh, also Griffiths. Uh, exactly. Farmer, it's also Griffiths. Who, who develops axial it's flow? Griffiths at and he's yeah. he's every bit as important as Whittle, Absolutely. and yet is completely forgotten. Largely because he hasn't uh, got a bunch absolutely. of family and then there's about the, the... <laughs> well, I was Well, I was just going to ask, how does a story like this that's so um, the, the wrong way round uh, get legs, stand up for so long and run about before anyone um, is able to sort of... Before you have to write a book like this that goes, no, hold on, this isn't the case. Is it... I mean, because we've talked about this before and we talked about this with Guy Walters as well. Um, uh, a couple of weeks ago is with the Second World War. There's a lot of stories we like to tell ourselves about what happened, because in a way, they're better stories. Frank Whittle banging a desk and saying no one's listening to me is, is a better story than, you know, there's a technocratic there's a technocratic sort of n- network in place that makes these things happen. Just as the the Battle of Britain, the few the, the few pluckily 
holding up the Nazi war machine is a be- is a better story than actually, you know, radar's been in the been, been this whole de- fighter defense system is the plan is the thing they've had in place for four or five years. Um, uh, there isn't a point where fighter command has no reserves left and all this. And the be- the better story is the one where we're the little the little plucky underdog. Uh, it, it, it strikes me. The really in, one of the really interesting things is here is how the historiography, when it's so wrong, has gained such purchase. Absolutely, and and I think uh, uh, Barnes Wallace is another example, isn't he? Uh, yeah. yeah, the guy's yeah. not listened to. You know, he's, uh, he's he's shooed away from the Ministry of Aircraft uh, Production when, in fact, he is the the chief designer of one of the most important armament firms in in Britain. Yeah. An intimate relationship with the state for decades, and will continue to have that uh, that relationship. Yeah. Um, yes. Exactly. I mean, why? Why uh, the, do these stories have legs? And I think the answer is 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 a whole kind of declinist culture that has been central to our understanding of British history from the nineteen fifties fifties onwards. So um, these stories become ever ever more plausible because they fit so well into this into this story. We know in advance that the British civil service is hostile to inventors. You know, we know that the British politicians don't understand science and, and technology. We know that the British ruling class is, uh, is, uh, is inept and backward-looking. So, of course, we, we're, 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 going to, we're going to believe that these, these stories are not only true, but must be, uh, must be true. Yeah. And then this, by extension, that goes to the military, doesn't it? And it, and it's that the Germans are brilliant at everything. They've got the best kit, the best tanks, best weapons. They're tactically they're sharper. We're a bunch of sort of slow people that are constantly stopping for tea. We're hanging off the shirt tails of the American mili- um, um, armaments might, and and we're just basically sort of hanging along there for the ride, but otherwise all a bit crap. And, and you know, I just find that just intensely irritating, that whole whole, whole approach, <laughs> you know. And, and I only have to yeah. pick up a Carlo Deste book and I, I start kind of wanting to tear out the pages and hurl it at the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's amazing. The story, the story of tanks, uh, uh, all those books that said every British tank was rubbish, the gun was too small and the tracks fell off and the engines needed too much maintenance. And you actually look at look at, look at it and you say well actually there were some pretty good tanks that early in the war the, the Matilda 2 for example um, yeah wasn't wasn't uh, wasn't too bad the two pounder gun well um, it looks small by the guns of the latter part of the war but it's as good an anti-tank gun as anyone's got at the at, at the at the beginning or completely fake comparisons between a, a 75 millimeter German ordinary gun and a 75 millimeter anti-tank gun yeah people ignore the quality of the british six pounder which was actually manufactured on a huge scale by by the americans uh, during the war or the 17 pounder which kind of for years and years which and years is awesome. disappeared entirely which is a very powerful but it's the highest weapon. velocity gun anti-tank gun of the war i think i mean certainly in, well, the, exactly. in the western hemisphere exactly. i mean and it's, then it's we go a, on about a greater the, velocity the eight, than the 88 well, the 88 gone, going on about the 88 as if the, the British didn't have a 3.7 inch anti-aircraft gun or indeed a 5.5 inch anti-aircraft gun. Um, just didn't need to use it against tanks. Because mm. <laughs> you've already got them. I mean, it is interesting as well because the, 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 the issue of reliability in tanks, which at one point 
that, that becomes the becomes the thing that that supposedly the British want more than anything. They just want a reliable tank. They, you know, the, the argument is they just want a reliable tank. They don't care about the firepower or the armament. Just as long as they know, basically, as long as they know they can drive away from the Germans in it is the implication of of that um, that argument. And and th- th- those those things come when, like at Crusader, you know, when basically Eighth Army gets outfought and out and out thought. And so immediately it, it 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 devolves into well the kit's crap, our kit's no good. That's that's why they're beating us. Rather than actually, rather than actually, we've 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 some leadership issues here. Our intelligence, right? Well, their intelligence is good because because ours is leaky, um, and we haven't we haven't actually joined up tanks and infantry yet. And all, and all the, basically all the sort of doctrinal boring things that 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 armies armies need to do. So the kit. The kit takes the strain in how you explain the the problem. It's really interesting. There's some debates in in Parliament in the summer of 1942, um, post the fall of Tobruk on the 21st of June, in which Oliver Littleton, who I think is by that stage Minister of Production or Supply or something, anyway, he he he's he's in the production kind of business, and he's one of Churchill's technocrats, an old mate who's been brought in, given a soft seat, wins the wins it in a by election, and becomes an MP and uh, and in the cabinet. Uh, uh, but it's actually as far as I can make out, an incredibly competent guy with with enormous good sense, huge international business experience, etc., etc. And he very, very calmly deconstructs these arguments that are raging at the time in the summer of 1942 and says, it's absolutely nonsense that we haven't got half-decent anti-aircraft, uh, anti-tank guns. It's absolutely ridiculous. Of course we have. We've got over 240 3.7-inch um, anti-aircraft guns in, in, in and around... Uh, Egypt. Um, that's absurd to say that the 88mm is better than this. Our tanks are perfectly good in saying exactly what you're saying. It says it then. At the same time, there is this new tank programme where they're saying, OK, what do we want at the beginning of 1942 from a tank? And, and funny enough, exactly the same thing is happening in Germany. And in Germany, they go, we want a really massive gun and we want lots of armour. That's their two top priorities. Whereas the British priority um, is, you know, half-decent gun, but Number two is ease of maintenance, and number three is reliability. And it's completely different mm. to the Germans, where, where reliability and ease of maintenance is way down on the list of priorities. Yeah, uh, and it's also very, very, very difficult to make uh, to make uh, comparisons. I mean, things change over over weeks and weeks and weeks and months. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, a lot of these arguments are ventilated during 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 the war. I mean, not just the the as it were the, the positive argument, also the negative ones. You you have all sorts of critical nonsense being 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 spoken, and some of that actually was spoken by Churchill in '42 uh, about 1940. So he's using the the argument that Al's uh, uh, pointing to. Say we lost in 1940 because we didn't have any arms. Yeah. Uh, we've got the arms now. It's it's uh, it's it's uh, it's 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 different. So I, I've seen I've seen that as a very kind of British general British response. Yeah. So 1940 is interpreted as a lack of tanks. Uh, 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 Malaya is interpreted again as a as a lack of uh, lack of lack of lack of equipment. Uh, um, North Africa again as a as a lack of equipment. The typical the typical um, response is uh, to, to blame a supposed lack of lack of machinery. Um, well, but, but it's suppose, just not there. Uh, the, the, the lack is also, just not but, there. But but also the but, but we're we're also talking about an army that's decided to use steel, not flesh. So yeah. you can see why they you can see why they might say, well, it's the it, it's the kid. You can see yeah. why they might be leaning towards thinking that because after all, that's the war that Brit- Britain's decided to to fight in its in its in its traditional way that you you have 
you have, you know, it used to be the Navy, you had cutting edge tech. This is the differences here is they're getting to grips with this idea on land yeah. again with the constraint of not repeating the butcher's bill of the First World War. Yeah. So that you, you can sort of see why they, why they might be having that argument in the army, whereas in fact the issue is really how you join things up tactically. Yeah. Uh, actually certainly in the desert with the time we're talking about up to basically up till kind of up till the the end of the or the last quarter of uh, 42 exactly so the older the older picture would implied that uh, the 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 british army the british elite just believed in horses and uh, uh, and lances and uh, uh, you know uh, 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 that kind of gentlemanly way of uh, of uh, of, of, of fighting so so you would you would expect them not to care about weapons yeah 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 the reality is they don't think that way they're not like that so as you as i'll rightly say they do care about weapons in fact they 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 they, they mm-hmm. uh, overdo the emphasis on on weapons and then you've got the image that we have of the germans yeah which is that uh, they are not like us. They are the ones that think about weapons, and that's why they keep beating us. Yeah? Where there's a reality, might be that actually they don't care so much about weapons. So they will go into battle in against uh, France in 1940 with inferior forces, <laughs> which is a, a rash thing to do from the the, the British uh, uh, point of view, and win. Yeah, uh, and Hitler interprets that as uh, as. Uh, a sign of his his military genius, whereas the British interpret that as a as a as a, as a sign that uh, that it's tanks and airplanes that uh, that win that win wars, which is what they believed all along, but didn't apply in this case. A couple of years ago, I came to see you um, lecture at my old uh, college in Oxford, Teddy Hall, um, where you. You talked about the, the myth of, of alone. Was that the, t- the actual title of the, 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 the lecture? I can't remember. It, it had myth and alone in it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, which, which is, I think, uh, which is something that, that um, c- you know, uh, c- couldn't, couldn't be a sort of more current um, idea. Uh, or certainly, certainly the year before last, when we were, when bef- before COVID-19 um, took over from the, from the Brexit debate. Um, and the thing I was struck by was how uh, you you made this very lucid case, and you'd been through all the newspaper editorials at the time, and uh, and and talked about how the historiography of it, and and that it comes through with Angus Calder in the sixties, and and the two the two historical uh, historiographical traditions of of uh, essentially Labour and Tory, and then right in the Q and A, an old boy puts his hands up. And he was, I'm 90 years old, and I can assure you that we were alone. And it just struck me. You, you, you've got an awful lot of work to do shifting that notion. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it, is, it is extraordinary uh, how deeply people believe that Britain was alone in 1940, 1941. It's also astonishing the extent to which historians who know that that could not have been true, believe that people at the time were told, not least by Churchill, uh, yeah. that they were alone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in fact, at the time, uh, uh, nobody said, well, very, very few people said Britain Apart was from David alone. No, he didn't. 
He didn't. He had it. Uh, people often point to, to that uh, that famous uh, uh, cartoon in the very well in, then alone the standard. Very well alone, absolutely. Um, but what is alone? This is the crucial point. It doesn't say. It doesn't say Britain alone. It says very well alone, uh, mm. and it's ambiguous. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, <laughs> if 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 anything is alone in forty forty one, it's something called the British Empire. Yeah. Churchill could not have said Britain was alone, because Britain or the United Kingdom was part of the British Empire. So the em empire could have been alone, yeah, but not Britain. Yeah, and in fact. Uh, uh, the empire was not alone in most British propaganda. If you look at the newsreels, they insist that the Free French uh, are fighting uh, alongside. That the, the Greeks are still uh, are still are still are still fighting. That the, um, the that there are Allied governments in exile in London. There are Polish forces. Uh, There's uh, most of the Norwegian uh, merchant fleet. There's the Norwegian merchant marine. There's the, there are, there are Belgian fishermen in 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 in, in Brixham. Now the propaganda is this is a war of allies. Even in 1940, 1941. In fact, there was a radio program of, that had the national anthems of the of the allies between May 1940 and June 1941. It stops in June 1941 for a very important reason that the BBC does not want to play the Internationale, which is, at that point, the, you can't call it the national anthem, but the state anthem of the, of the Soviet Union. So, so they say, well, how can, we, how can we deal with this? And some bright spark says, well, let's just cancel the programme so we don't have to play it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? So, so uh, not, not, not only is Britain never alone in, in, in British propaganda, because it can't be, it's got to be the empire, but typically even the empire is not uh, alone. Yeah. And I haven't even mentioned the USA. The USA is, is routinely mentioned not as an ally, but as, some, as a country that is, that is very clearly helping through 1940 and 1941. Give us the tools and we'll finish the job. Yeah, Churchill yeah. says and the, in February, because, February 41. Yeah. Because in political discourse, it, 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 up to nine, well, up till the Second World War, the empire is a, and the dominions are a, a sort of a given. And I mean, especially yeah. after the First World War, when the, when the dominions have fought alongside um, uh, the British effort. Yeah. Uh, all over, all over the world. So, um, th the idea that that would have somehow got forgotten, exactly, or, or exactly, it can't, it can't, it can't be forgotten. In fact, it needs to be stressed, and it, and it is, yeah. and it is stressed. Yeah. So the question is, why do we come to believe that um, that Britain was alone, uh, uh, and that Churchill went around talking about Britain being alone, which was utterly impossible? Um, and the answer is that from 1945, really. People do start talking about something called Britain being alone, including Churchill himself in his in his history of the of, of the of the uh, of the war, and that is that is uh, to my mind a profound change in in how the British interpret their war experience. We go from an imperial and indeed internationalist view of the war. Yeah, if you look at VE Day, the flags that that you see especially in the old uh, colour films, so these bits are often taken up and you see the film on, on the telly, are, are the, not just the Union Jacks, 
but the stars, the stars and stripes, the hammer and sickle, the Chinese flag, the Greek flag, the Norwegian flag, the Yugoslav flag, they're all there very prominently on, on, uh, on display. And if you look at Churchill's VE Day speech, it's full of recognition, uh, powerful recognition of the role of the Soviet Union uh, in, in particular, but also the United States and, and, and uh, uh, other allies. This isn't little Englander stuff, but, it be but, but the stories of the war become... Uh, focused on this notion of, of uh, Britain alone. Um, really, actually, from the 1960s uh, onwards, though, Churchill starts making an argument about Britain being alone in 1945, as do, as do others. And I think there's a very important post-war reason for this. And it, it goes like this. The, 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 in 1945, the British are desperate because Lend-Lease is going to be cut off. Yeah. So they say to the Americans, look, we were in the war from 1939. Uh, a year joined us in, in, at the very end of 1941. This wasn't our war we were fighting. This was uh, a, a war for freedom in which we should all have been fighting from the beginning. Yeah? But we, and uh, uh, the French too earlier, had not only been fighting, we'd been paying you for armaments. Yeah, we'd actually even built arms factories in the United States, aero engine uh, factories, shipyards. It's true. Yeah? We forget that now, but it's true. Yeah? So you owe us, was the, was, the, was the line. Now, they couldn't say empire. No, yeah. because that's unpalatable in America. Well, that's unpalatable in America, and, um, uh, and the story looks very different because the, empire is, uh, the rest of the empire is lending the United Kingdom money uh, uh, during the war. So, the, so, so the, the position of the empire is different from the position of the, of the United Kingdom. Now, the Americans say, uh, we're, not, we're, not, we're not having this, and Lend-Lease does stop, um, but it's replaced by, uh, for, for the post-war years, uh, by a loan, an American... Which is, American which is the one loan, that's finally is, paid off during Gordon Brown's premiership, isn't it? Uh, it, it, I, I, it's 2007, 2006, like yes, yes, exactly, yes, yes, yeah. But that's um, what everyone and everyone was, has this myth that 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 Lendlease was finally paid off in 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 2006, and of course that's absolute nonsense because there was no money passed hands about Lendlease. It's it's the post-war loans that were paid off. Exactly, it's really important, and it's fascinating that um, that the story was put about that Lendlease was was paid off. I mean, the, the loan was tiny compared to, to, lend, to, the, to the total uh, amount of, uh, of, of Lend-Lease. Yeah. And yet it's also so forgotten a... as well. That it's also forgotten that 31% of all United States supplies in the ETO, in the European Theatre of Operations, uh, were also supplied by Britain on exactly the same terms, i.e. for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. No, the American productive effort was, 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 uh, was extraordinary. And it, it allowed the United Kingdom to, to mobilise to a quite exceptional extent. Uh, I mean, lots of historians after the war, Angus Calder being a notable uh, uh, case, took the extent of British mobilisation during the war to be a reflection of the, the genius of British planners, the commitment of the, of, of the British people to, 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 to the war. I mean, there's something, there's something in that, but the brutal basic fact is that that uh, level of um, mobilization was possible because the united kingdom was rich uh, and dependent on overseas supplies yeah uh, it didn't have to grow its own food it didn't have to dig coal out of the ground and turn it into uh, in, into petrol it could just get this stuff from overseas and it could also get as james you were just indicating huge quantities of weapons 
yeah, uh, uh, directly from the United States. They didn't have to be made in, in British, uh, British factories. So but my point, David, the, was that Britain was also supplying America with a heck of a lot of stuff as well. I mean, you know, it is, it is 31% of all US supplies in total come from Britain. While, you know, from the moment they first land in American troops come in into Britain in January 1942 through to the end of the war. Now, obviously, you know, it's how do you judge supplies? And what we're also talking about is, yeah. you know, of course, we're talking about airfields. We're talking about all sorts of stuff. I mean, you know, but, yeah, but, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not an entirely one way ticket. I mean, no, absolutely. Um, there is there is the reverse lend lease. Absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. Um, that's right. The other thing I've, I also remember sitting in a um, in a lecture that you gave uh, where you were also questioned at the end because you were making really really interesting points about rationing and pointing out that you know compared to the rest of rest of Europe it was absolutely nothing and, and there was someone in the audience who just wasn't having it and, and you, you were you were saying that you know, with an amazing amount of patience pointing out that actually this is was was a complete fact and and that. Her memory was was had to be questioned because you know she was just plain wrong, and it was very yeah. very funny. But well, but, but rationing is true. You know, it's another yes. myth, isn't yes. it? Yes. No, no. But who who can blame people? I mean, we've we've had this this uh, this intense propaganda about rationing and lack of food and um, all the other issues that we've been talking about. You know, since nineteen forty five, and especially since the since the since the nineteen sixties, it's in you know, it's in authoritative books. You know, it's 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 on the telly all, all the time. Um, I mean, I'm not complaining that the people believe these things. It's it's a, it's a phenomenon to be to be to be understood. But yes, um, and people people conflate rationing with um, with lack of food. I mean, the point about rationing was to stop uh, food consumption going up too much. Yeah, because suddenly you had your people in in. Uh, all in all in work uh, many people being paid much better wages than they'd had uh, before the war of course uh, they want to eat more but you you can't supply the food because you don't have the, the the shipping and you you want to keep inflation down so you ration to ensure a fair shares and uh, and uh, uh, helps you helps you control 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 prices and what do you ration you ration stuff that's imported and expensive uh, sugar tea fat uh, uh, meat. Yeah, you're not rationing potatoes. You're not rationing carrots. Yeah, uh, you're not rationing bread. Actually, uh, and, uh, and much much of that was from imported imported flour. In the continent of Europe, you know, you're rationing the basics. You're rationing your 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 your, your base calorie intake. In, in the United Kingdom, you're 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 rationing not exactly luxuries because because fat and sugar aren't 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 uh, aren't luxuries but um stuff that's 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 relatively expensive and crucially stuff that's imported yeah and the idea that britain grew its own food during the war um which came up in the brexit debates you know if the if the continentals kind of cut us off you know we'll we'll show them because uh, um we fed ourselves during the war you know what an extraordinary belief we fed ourselves during during the war yeah um, but this, this is people, people in, the, in their 60s and 70s who, who were reading, reading, um, reading the histories. Uh, I mean, anyone al alive during the war, of course, would know that uh, huge proportions of British food 
were coming from from over from from overseas. It it, uh, it was evident from 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 propaganda. It was common decency to recognise that the the merchant uh, the merchant marine actually of 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 of, of, of many countries was uh, was uh, you know battling through 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 the Atlantic to get these vital supplies uh, to Britain. David, as as a, as a sort of economic historian. Looking back on on Britain's war effort, I mean, is is there something sort of to you um, that seems blindingly obvious that Britain should or could have done but didn't? I mean, could could they have could no. they have had a better war? I I think um, I I think the UK could have been a lot luckier. Um, uh, I think that's that's the most important uh, point to make. I think actually. Uh, perhaps it it shouldn't have invested quite so much in the in the RAF. Uh, perhaps it should have gone for a, a larger army, um, a larger, perhaps less mechanized army. Dare I say it? Uh, uh, I mean, a bigger army in France uh, in, in uh, 1939 40 might have might have been a, a good a good good idea in 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 retrospect. But no, I think the, the United Kingdom did rather well in the sense that um, the, the, uh, the casualties were relatively low compared to most other most other, other well, which countries. Is the, which is the risk with a large land army, isn't it? That's yes. The, that's, the, that's the calculation, isn't it? Is that yes. You, you have a smaller land army, you use your RAF to do it. Yes. You, 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 you certainly expose yourself to less, less danger in that respect. Yes. So, I mean, that's... But that, these these are sort of eternal uh, uh, what ifs, aren't they? I mean, I, I, luck. The I mean, yesterday we were talking about about Blitzkrieg and about um, about the German invasion of France and how basically the French French army did everything that the German army could have asked of it. Um, uh, it absolutely played entirely, and I think that's where when you say that's the moment of true luck in the first year of the war. Is that is that things go the Germany's way for those first six weeks of actual Western campaigning? Yeah, absolutely. It's really important, and it, it helps us understand that it, in 1939, 1940, the, the British elite were confident of victory, as indeed were, were yeah. the French elite, and they had every reason uh, to to be to be to be to be confident. I mean, we rather um, tend to start the war in 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 1940 when. Of course, it obviously starts. Uh, it starts early, and in fact, preparation for war, of course, starts long before September September nineteen thirty nine. Um, but those plans, which are, really are focused on a uh, small army, large air force, uh, uh, large navy, are are undone by this unexpected victory of the, yeah. of, of the German army in 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 in, in nineteen forty. It it really is crucial that 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 point. And then and then. Singapore next as the the next thing that completely casts the British effort or the British imperial effort into a different light, and you have to have America um, involved. Yes, exactly. Fully. I mean, there's a, there's a counterfactual I I, uh, I suggested in the uh, in in Britain's war machine, and that is if if uh, the Japanese had not um, conquered large chunks of the of, of the British Empire and threatened the rest uh, it, 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 in the east. It's conceivable that with a, a large Indian Indian army, uh, the, the the British uh, the British Empire uh, could, with the Soviet Union, have have uh, have, have beaten Nazi Germany and uh, and fascist Italy. I mean, it's not 
it's it's not entirely plausible, but it's not it's not it's not so far fetched. It's not beyond the realm yeah. of imagining. And, and but the, the key point is to say, look, here's another a, a very important British defeat, which has profound consequences. Uh, I'm not the defeat itself, but it's, its implications for the power of the British Empire. It suddenly has to defend India. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if it hadn't had to defend India. The, the story would have been very, very different. Well, uh, well, it's fascinating, endlessly fascinating. This, um, I mean, you, uh, the, that you say that the preparations for war, because after all, the, uh, um, a, a point I've I've read you make is that Britain and France declare war on Germany in 1939, having not been attacked by Germany. And if you want, if you want to want a mark of confidence in the outcome, there, there it is, right there. Um, that that's not two countries going. Oh well, I suppose they've uh, we're going to have to because they've attacked us. It's them. It's the two governments going. Well, okay then, we're going to have to we're going to have to tackle Germany now, and at a time of our own choosing is what that implies as well, isn't it? Rather than rather than they've got the jump on us, yes. which is fascinating and not not at all how it's sort of um, portrayed. Absolutely, it's a really critical critical point. Yeah, uh, who attacks whom? Yeah. It's 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 Britain and France uh, declare war on Germany, yeah, uh, for for a big cause, and the, the, the cause is um, uh, uh, to to stop the Germans taking over continental Europe. But the, the confidence is really deep. So they say, well, we'll as you say, we'll 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 uh, attack Germany at the time of our our choosing. But in the meantime, say the British and the French, we're going to attack the Soviet Union. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's how confident they are. Yeah. yeah? So they come up yeah. with plans, you know, to 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 uh, to bomb God. Baku from 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 Syria, yeah, and to intervene in the the Russo-Finnish um, uh, war of uh, of 39, 39 40. I mean, that's why there are British and French troops in the north of Norway. Yeah. Now there's your counterfactual. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, heavens. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And but David, it, you it, just it, you just it, mentioned to go. On, no, you say. No, I'll give you another example of British confidence, but in a in a, in a period where where uh, it's much harder to to believe that, that there was any, and that is uh, the summer of nineteen nineteen forty. Uh, if one were to believe all the stories about all the equipment of the British Army being left behind in in France, you have a hard job explaining why Churchill orders tanks to be sent from the United Kingdom to Egypt in the summer of nineteen forty. Yeah. I mean that 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 tells you, in itself, that the stories about lack of armaments are nonsense. Yeah, uh, it tells you that the, the idea that the, that the United Kingdom elite thought it was on the on the on the brink of a of a of a, of a Nazi invasion are nonsense. Well, it, it, it's something we've discussed a lot as well, isn't it? That 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 you know the chances of of Operation Sea Lion, the invasion of planned yeah. German invasion of Britain, ever succeeding had they attempted to launch it, is literally zero. I mean, yeah, it would have just failed spectacularly. Yeah, yeah. No, but the additional point here is that the the, the British knew knew that. Yeah, and and so they they feel free uh, to start a war. In uh, not quite start a war, but but uh, to to certainly to engage in yeah in 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 North Africa, which is a which is a long long way away, uh, especially um, from the summer of nineteen forty. Well, if you're and if you're looking at it through the prism of of little Britain or Britain on its own, it's a long way away. If you're looking yeah. at it in the through the prism of an imperial global 
globalist international effort, it's it's round. It's only halfway to as far away as you can get, isn't it? it it's yes. it's not e- it's not even east of Suez. It's uh, uh, it, it's within your within your sort of um, uh, locality, as it yeah, were. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So yes, exactly. It, it shows that so clearly, doesn't it? That that yeah. that this is a this is a, an empire fighting an an imperial war, not not a a, a, a little island, you know, struggling to defend its uh, its its territory. No. And actually, even during the height of the Battle of Britain, they're sending hurricanes to Malta um, and to the Middle yeah. East. So it's yeah. it's you know again. You know this idea yeah. that we're kind of sort of absolutely on our yeah. down on our uppers, and you know yeah. we're, we're sort of staring down the barrel, and all the rest of it is is, is yeah. just nonsense. I mean, I know it's a different narrative, but actually, I think the narrative the the, the reality the, the reality is much better because you know the reason we win the Battle of Britain is because we're really good, um, and because we're really organised, and and we've got our ducks in a row, and we're fighting the battle that we want to, and I, I think that's I think that's much better than a kind of sort of. You know, for all the kind of sort of romance of, of of last stands, I think I think that you know I kind of feel prouder of the effort, knowing that it was we won because we're good at it, rather than because we're back to all amateurs, sort of Captain Mannering figures. Yes, absolutely, and I think uh, I think uh, uh, politically the um, that that narrative you've, you've outlined there is 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 preferable uh, as well. I mean, I think there are, there are huge dangers in this. Uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 we had our backs to the wall, and uh, we invented all these new things, and it, it it all turned out fine. I mean, this is the this is the 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 the, the bullshit Brexiter uh, uh, story of. Uh, of, of 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 British history, yeah, and we had it with you know with the ventilators uh, just uh, just recently, and um, and uh, I think we're going to have it with with uh, with the vaccines uh, uh, as well. It's it's a nonsense, you know. The, the the UK survived in 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 1940 because it was strong, because it had been making Spitfires from 1938, you know, because it had uh, adopted. Uh, key bits of foreign technology, um, including bits of uh, 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 radar, including you know the, the not the cavity magnetron, but the uh, but the but the magnetron, the original uh, 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 version. Um, it was a great industrial uh, um, power with 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 global reach. Um, it 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 wasn't uh, uh, a, a kind of minnow on it on it on it on its last uh, last legs that was roused to to industrial genius by 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 rhetoric yeah i mean churchill was a great figure because he led a, a, a superpower yeah he he didn't turn um a a a, a a a poor struggling island into a superpower by by talking a lot yeah uh, 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 in fact, I mean, well, you Churchill, can see why he might have promoted that idea, though. <laughs> he, uh, yeah, yes and no, yes and no. I mean, he, I think he, he, he clearly understood um, that um, that the United Kingdom uh, declined relatively to an extraordinary extent between uh, um, the the moment he came into office in, in May 1940 and the moment he, he he left in 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 1945. There was a spectacular period of, of, of relative um, relative decline well um well we could as ever we always say this to all of our guests we could talk about this forever um uh but i think our listeners well they don't commute anymore do they because they're all under house arrest um i, I hope they've enjoyed this enormously david it's been a, a real pleasure a privilege to talk to you and to uh 
kick this ball around the park. Uh, oh, this has been fantastic. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, good to see you uh, both again. Yeah. Y- yes, likewise. Yeah, yeah. Cheerio. Thanks, David, ever so much. much. <laughs> bye bye.